All right, we'll go ahead and start. It's 9 o'clock, so thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church and our Sunday School Equipping Hour class. And we're excited to introduce a new series uh, for you for the next eight weeks. Uh, myself and the pastors and elders will be going through a biblical counseling series. And originally it was our intent, or our heart, to have two classes from which to choose. But I guess we'll just say that the uh, spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak in the situation. So, But anyways, we're going to roll into that, and hopefully for the next session. So we're going to do an eight-week session here, take a couple-week break, and do another eight-week session of a new class. And uh, we'll shoot, Lord willing, we'll shoot for that session to be uh, multiple classes where you can choose from. All right, so um, just, but, but the heart behind this series is really just to kind of continue to equip the church in the area of biblical counseling. And uh, not that we need to have anybody who is specialized in biblical counseling, but all of us together uh, will, be, will participate in biblical counseling as we uh, minister and live with one another. So some just in terms of the schedule, uh, again, this is going to go on for the next eight weeks. Starting today, we'll be tackling some issues such as anxiety and depression. We'll be talking about contentment. And even kind of uh, Pastor Isaiah is going to talk about, I think, methodology, about how do you go about um, doing biblical counseling for someone. And so for each session, uh, at, least, at least the first four, we're going to start out with a case study. So you have a handout. I think the handout's going around. And on the back side of your handout, you have a case study. And we're going to present a case one week and, and then give you an opportunity to kind of think about it and work through that. And then the next week, we'll talk about kind of the quote-unquote answers or, or discuss the case study. So this is the case study for uh, this coming up week. We'll talk about the answers next week. You have to tune in next week. Uh, to get the answers. But uh, this is case study, and it's ad adapted from uh, this book by Jay Adams called The Christian Counselor's Casebook, Applying the Principles of Nuthetic Counseling. And it's called, quote, unquote, nothing left to their marriage. There's nothing left to our marriage. That's the way Jack ended his long tale of disagreement, heartache, and frustration. And as the final statement, Jack said, I just don't love Jill anymore. Jill was quick to agree, and I don't love Jack anymore either. All of the feelings that I once had for him are gone. It was clear that Jack and Jill had not come to you for help, but to clear their consciences. As professing Christians, they knew they had no biblical grounds for divorce, yet here they were, coming to you as their Christian friend, seeking your, quote-unquote, counsel on their plans for divorce because living together no longer seemed bearable. So as they sit before you, you're kind of like, where, oh, where do I begin? That's question number one. Question number two, what erroneous notion do Jack and Jill appear to share in common? Number three, what is the number one thing that this couple needs? And how will you identify or investigate this need and bring it to light? So just, just some food for thought, things for you to chew on and consider, maybe even talk about uh, in preparation for next week. All right, so that's the case uh, for next week. Uh, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to begin our study uh, in Colossians chapter 1. The title of this message is Presenting Everyone Complete in Christ, by the power of Christ, the heart foundations of biblical counseling. And it comes from Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. I just want to set the context for the passage here. The context of Colossians was is that it was written by Paul to the church at Colossae and that was planted by Epaphras. And Paul wrote this letter from prison to combat a false teaching that was uh, starting in the church, kind of in its inception uh, stage. The teaching was later called Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that God was good and that spiritual things were good, but they believed that anything physical was bad. They denied the incarnation and deity of Christ because that's a physical thing. They also believed that the scriptures weren't sufficient for Christians to live their lives. 
They believed in a higher spiritual and uh, secret knowledge, claiming that God had revealed something to them outside of the scriptures. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul greets the Colossians in Christ in verses 1 and 2. He thanks God for them and for their faith in Christ in verses 3 through 8. He prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of Christ and to walk in Christ in verses 9 to 14. And then starting in verse 15, which is where we're going to start our, our, um, our reading here, starting in verse 15, Paul teaches them about the, the preeminence of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and that he is the most important thing in the universe. So I'm going to read uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 29. Verse 15, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. This is obviously about the preeminence of Christ. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, through the blood of his cross, through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I'm, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then we come to our verses for our study this morning. Uh, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I'm also going to read it from the ESV. Verse 28, again, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray this morning. Our Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day where we can gather together to worship you as a spiritual body, as a spiritual family, as it were, and that we can sit under the teaching of your word. And so we pray, God, that you would bless our study this morning, as we delve into your words, we talk about the heart foundations of biblical counseling, that you would help us to grow as a church, that we would be ministering to one another, seeking to present everyone complete in Christ, by the power of Christ. And we pray that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you have your outline, uh, and uh, that's on the front page. I know there's, there's two sides, but on the front page you have your outline here, and we're going to be talking this morning about the message, the method the manner, and the motivation, presenting everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ, the heart foundations of biblical counseling. The message, the method, the manner, and the motivation. All right, so here's the proposition for our teaching. 
We collectively as a church, all of us, through proclaiming Christ to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters, overcome our performance-based mindset and embrace the stewardship that God has given us to counsel and present every person mature or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. I'll say it again. We collectively as a church, all of us, through proclaiming Christ to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters, overcome our performance-based mindset and embrace the stewardship that God has given us to counsel and present every person mature or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. Roman numeral one, the message, right from verse 28, we proclaim him. The message is Christ. That's the first blank. The message, the message is Christ. And in the original language, the word is katangelo. It's proclaim. It means to preach or to make known. It's not necessarily a formal preaching. That's a different word. It's not necessarily heralding. That's also a different word in the Greek. But katangelo means to communicate, to relate, or to tell the truth about Christ. Some synonyms would be to announce, to make known, to declare, to proclaim. Paul is reminding believers that our main job is to proclaim Christ. In our counseling, the message is Christ. And the ESV and the NKJV, those two different versions, uh, I, I like how they um, structure the, the translation. The ESV says, him we proclaim. Or the NKJV says, whom we proclaim. In this sentence, the pronoun is the first in the verse, which is in classical Greek is the position of emphasis, highlighting the significance. So the ESV and the NKJV here are a little closer to the original language, putting him, Christ, in the beginning of the sentence and giving Christ greater emphasis. So in that phrase, him we proclaim, the emphasis is not on we, right? It's not on us. The emphasis is not on what we're doing, which is the proclaiming, but the emphasis is on the content of our proclamation, the content of our message, which is Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim. Subpoint so A on your outline, we proclaim him exclusively. We proclaim him exclusively. The message that we proclaim is Christ. Him we proclaim. The subject of the statement is singular, right? Paul doesn't also say, well, we proclaim him, and also I think you guys need to pray seven times a day. Or we proclaim him, and also you should have uh, this particular style of worship music. He just says we, or him, we proclaim, right? It's not Jesus and Sigmund Freud. It's not Jesus and Jean Piaget. It's not Jesus and psychology. We proclaim him exclusively. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most important thing in our ministry, in our biblical counseling, is Christ. It's not methods. It's not traditions of the church. The message of Jesus Christ must be the exclusive and singular message in our ministry. We do not proclaim Cornerstone Bible Church or any other church denomination. Even though we respect these men, we don't proclaim John MacArthur, John Piper, Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul, Albert Muller, or even the elders of Cornerstone. We don't proclaim them. We proclaim Christ. Paul says it here in Colossians 1.28, and he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2. He says this, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message of our ministry and our counseling must be Christ. Otherwise, it becomes about proclaiming traditions, culture, opinions, preferences. We proclaim him exclusively. Letter B, we proclaim him exhaustively. We proclaim him exhaustively. You could also say comprehensively, completely, or accurately. Let's take a look at the context to see what about Christ, in particular, Paul is proclaiming. So if I've already read verses 15 to 20. 
these next few subpoints come from uh, verses 15 to 20. In verse 15, we see that Paul is proclaiming the deity and the preeminence of Christ. In verse 16, we see that Paul is proclaiming the creative power, the eternality and dominion of Christ. In verse 17, we see that Paul is proclaiming the sustaining power and, again, the preeminence of Christ. In verse 18, we see that he, he proclaims the headship, the eternal existence, and, again, of course, the preeminence of Christ. In verse 19, we see that Paul proclaims the deity, that Christ is the Savior, that he is the propitiation, and that he is the reconciler. So we proclaim him exhaustively, including the preeminence of Christ in everything. The next kind of big bucket category that Paul proclaims about Christ is this, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of his glory. I'll read verses 21 to 27 again. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice, uh, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I do, not, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up all that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but, now, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this second category that Paul is proclaiming about Christ is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of his glory. Parallel passage is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Paul is saying this, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as, of, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is the gospel message for Gentiles. Most of us, I think, are Gentiles. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The message that we proclaim is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins, and that we, particularly in this category, particularly as Gentiles, can receive forgiveness, righteousness, and a relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Romans 1, 16 to 17 verses is uh, similar. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, that the righteous man shall live by faith. So we see here in Romans chapter 1, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not just that he is a righteous God, but that his righteousness is given or credited. You heard the word imputed to believers by faith. Notice that Paul says that the righteous man shall live by faith. It's not just that you're a righteous man saved by faith. It's that we live by faith every day. And that's a big principle of biblical counseling. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ covering your sins, I'd invite you to make this day the day of your salvation. So if you don't know, 
If you're not sure where you stand, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would invite you to speak to myself or pretty much anyone here would love to talk to you about the gospel. All right, back to the text of uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. I love how Paul summarizes himself in verse 28. He proclaims the preeminence of Christ and all these things in verses 15 to 20. And then he talks about making known the mystery that has now been revealed through Christ in verses 21 to 27. And then in verse 28, he sums up all that he's said, and he says, Him we proclaim. The personal pronoun him refers to the antecedent Christ and everything that Paul has said in verses 15 to 20 and 21 to 27. We proclaim him exhaustively. We're going to come back to this point when we get to this section on teaching later on. All right, letter C, we're moving on. We proclaim him indiscriminately. We proclaim him indiscriminately. And I might even put in parentheses, to ourselves and to others. The proclamation of Christ is not just for unbelievers or for visitors. Paul targets everyone in verse 28. He says, presenting everyone, right? Every man or everyone. In the original language, it's pas anthropos, everyone, right? In verse 27, we see the mystery is revealed to the Gentiles. So we're proclaiming to the Gentiles. Verse 26, we see that it's revealed to his saints. So we reproclaim to the saints. Verse 23, the hope of the gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. So that pretty much includes everyone, right? Verse 27, the Gentiles. Verse 26, the saints. Verse 23, the hope of the gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. So this is everyone, right? We proclaim Christ indiscriminately. And I want to focus on just two groups under that big category of indiscriminately, okay? We proclaim him to ourselves, right? That's uh, maybe, I don't know, so point number one under C. We proclaim him to ourselves. And this is a, another big tenet of biblical counseling. We live in a performance-oriented world, right? Students, I know there's some students in here. Students are graded on their performance and their good schoolwork. You get good, good schoolwork, good homework, good test scores equals a good grade. At work, we are graded on our performance, right? If we do good work, we, make, we have good production, we bring in good sales, we finish projects successfully and under deadline, that equals a favorable standing with our employers maybe a stable position or a salary, promotions, bonus, being valued as an employee. We are performance-oriented in our relationships. If I'm kind to my friends and family, if I'm responsible, selfless, loving, patient, humble, then my friends and family will reciprocate and I'll have a good relationship with them, good relationships with them. So we live in a performance-oriented world and this is our default mindset. The problem is that we carry this mindset over to our relationship with God. And we think that if we're quote-unquote good Christians, if we go to church, if we read our Bibles, if we serve in ministry, if we don't do too many egregious sins, then we think that God is going to be happy with us and that we'll be blessed. We think that if we perform well according to our own standard of what is good Christian, that we can earn God's favor. Conversely, if we have trials in our lives, if things aren't going well, if they're not going the way that we planned, if we're not feeling particularly blessed by God, if we don't feel his love, then we assume that it's because we're not performing well enough to deserve his love and his blessing. We're so conditioned from this world by this performance-based mindset, this works-based mindset, that we project this mindset onto our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, and we assume that since everybody else grades us on performance, that he grades us on performance too. But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. God does not grade us on a performance. He grades us based on the perfect and finished work of Christ on the cross. And this is where we need to proclaim Christ to ourselves. 
Right? This is Jerry Bridges, the discipline of grace. He says that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because the message of Christ is essential, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification in our daily living with the Lord too. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life, I which, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we must exercise our faith in Christ every day. We must remind ourselves daily that not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we continue to walk in grace each day, covered with the righteousness of Christ. So, number one, and under that subpoint, we proclaim him to ourselves. Number two, we proclaim him to others. And particularly, we mean unbelievers in this situation. People need to know the good news of Christ's work. They need to know that he has satisfied the requirement of a holy God for all time. People need to know, the lost need to know, that because of Christ, God doesn't grade us based on performance. People need to know the reality of hell. William Booth is the founder of the Salvation Army, and he has this quote, I would that you could spend a weekend in hell and hear the shrieks and the groans of the damned in hell. I would that you could smell the burning flesh of those in torment. Then you would come back preaching the gospel of Christ with greater urgency. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19 now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So when you read this verse without an eye on eternity and without the reality of hell, it sounds very quaint, even kind of PC, right? Oh, we're, we're reconcilers. We're sowing a message of happiness and peace. Would you be reconciled to God? That's kind of what it seems like. But when you, when you read this verse in light of eternity and with the reality of hell in your mind, then there is a passion, an urgency, a desperation to plead with people, to beg people to be reconciled to God. Spurgeon says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. So we proclaim him to ourselves, we proclaim him to unbelievers. Letter D, we proclaim him corporately. We proclaim him corporately. In verse 28, Paul uses the first person plural pronoun, right? He says we, right? Him, we proclaim. And he says that twice. Interestingly, in the preceding verses, in describing his ministry, Paul uses the first person singular pronoun, I, at the end of verse 23, in verse 24, twice, and in verse 25. And now in verse 28, the verse that we're looking at today, he switches to the plural we, and then in verse 29, he switches back to the singular I. The message that we proclaim Christ is to be done corporately, as a body. It's not just the pastor, it's not just the leaders or elders, it is the entire body proclaiming Christ corporately. And we'll come back to this point uh, when we get to, to point number four, the motivation. All right. Well, I have at least three more subpoints about the message of Christ, and I don't want to spend the entire time here. We've only covered three words so far, right? Letter E, we proclaim him passionately. We proclaim him passionately. And this is based on the definition of the word proclaim in verse 28. We don't just make suggestions, right? This is not just FYI. It's not just food for thought. But we are to passionately and lovingly confront people with the message of Jesus Christ. We are trying to snatch them out of the fire of hell. We proclaim him passionately. Letter F, we proclaim him perpetually. 
we proclaim him perpetually. And this is based on the verb tense in verse 28, right? The word katangelo is in a present participle. It indicates a continuous or repeated action. And so we are to proclaim him corporately, passionately, and perpetually. And the last thing, letter G on your outline, we proclaim him compulsively. We proclaim him compulsively. And this is based on the idea in verse 28b towards the end of presenting. Right? I think Paul uses that earlier on uh, when Christ is presenting us, and now we have this uh, stewardship of presenting other people. Right? We'll come back to this, but we do have a stewardship and a responsibility to proclaim Christ. Right? All right, and again, we'll come back to that. So the foundation for any biblical ministry, especially a biblical counseling ministry, is, is that the message is Christ. All right, before we get to number two, just a quick word of application, right? Application part one. Um, a few questions. What message are you proclaiming? Is it Christ? By your life, actions, decisions, and words, are you making Christ known? And I'm preaching this to myself, too, because I'm much more comfortable, if you talk to me, I'm much more comfortable talking about sports or food or restaurants or about my kids or about the Lakers' recent acquisitions. I'm much more comfortable talking about those things than I am about Christ. But how about you? When people think about you, what is the message that they would say you proclaim? People at work, your friends and family, when they think about you, what message are you proclaiming? Is it Christ? Okay, Roman numeral two, the method. The method, admonishing or warning and teaching. Admonishing or warning and teaching. How are we to proclaim Christ? By admonishing everyone and teaching everyone. From, again, from verse 28. Admonishing and warning. The word in the original language is nutheteo. And it means to warn, to caution, to correct, or to instruct. It, it kind of implies practical warnings. There is a connotation of something that is imminent in the moment, real-life situations, the practical application of Scripture, counseling, encouraging, correcting, rebuking. And this is where we get the term nuthetic counseling. I don't know if you've heard of that. There used to be an organization called the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. It's from the word here in, uh, in verse 28, nutheteo. So that's why Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is a good summary verse that explains the heart foundations of the heart behind nuthetic or biblical counseling. Another verse is like it, Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Paul says this, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish or instruct in the ESV one another. That word admonish or instruct is the same word, nutheteo. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, again, nutheteo, one another in all, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish, again, the same word, the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. If someone is living in sin, if they're out of step or out of order, if they're neglecting their duties, we are called to humbly and lovingly admonish or warn and exhort them. I don't want to make a big deal about this because it's supposed to be part of the normal life in the body of Christ, but I'm fairly certain that we don't do this enough here. The best analogy that I can think of is, is of a parent who loves his or her child and warns or admonishes that child out of love and concern for them. Not nagging, not being judgmental, not belittling, not admonishing over areas of preference, but humbly, lovingly, patiently confronting people over sin, pointing them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Application part number two, have you done this before? Have you shown your love for your brother or sister in the church by admonishing them, 
Second part application is, are you making it easy for people to admonish you? And I don't mean by like, oh, I'm just sinning so much, it's easy for people to admonish me, but I mean by your response. When people admonish you, by your response, are you making it easy for them to admonish you? Do you recognize that when people admonish you, that they are doing it out of love, it's an act of love? Or do you attack or criticize their efforts? Well, he, he admonished me, but he did it all wrong. Right? Do you accuse them of being harsh or judgmental? Do you kind of pick apart their criticisms of you? Do you rationalize your sin and just say, oh, it's probably just a misunderstanding? All right, the, the first part of the method is admonishing a warning. The second part of the method is teaching. So this would be maybe letter B under Roman numeral two. The method, admonishing, or teaching. Teaching, the word in the original language is didasco, and it means to instruct, to explain, to deliver, to deliver truth, or to teach. And that's why we have things like equipping our Sunday school. Teaching lays a foundation for our lives. In order to have a good practical theology, you must first have good theology. What we understand and what we believe determines how we live. And this is the main reason that I speak to you this morning, right? The reason that any of this makes sense is, that, is because you believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God, and that it is sufficient for salvation and godliness. That's the only way that any of this can make sense, is, is, is in the sufficiency of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Another verse that you're familiar with, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is the heart of your leaders at Cornerstone that the teaching of the word of God in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives would produce fruit, that you may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the foundation for biblical counseling is, number one, the message is Jesus Christ. Number two, the method is admonishing and teaching. Number three, the manner. The manner, with all wisdom, right? Him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The manner that we minister is with all wisdom. If you've ever been in a small group with me or a care group with me, you've heard me say this phrase, biblical wisdom trumps experience. Right? The word for wisdom in the original language is Sophia. The wisdom that Paul is talking about here is biblical wisdom, not earthly wisdom. We're going to contrast the two here briefly. So uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, you can turn with me there if you like. And James here is talking about the wisdom from above and contrasting it with the wisdom um, from the world. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Similarly, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's kind of an extended, you might want to turn there, it's kind of an extended passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So worldly wisdom and experience are foolishness when compared to God's word. God has made the wisdom of the world foolishness. Here's an example of the world's wisdom, right? In this postmodern age, uh, one of the central tenets of the world's wisdom is this notion of individual autonomy and self-determination, right? You are your own person. This is what the world says. You are your own person. You can be who you want to be and do what you want to do. And don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. You don't owe it to anyone to behave a certain way. You only have to answer to yourself. You determine what is right and wrong for yourself. That's the wisdom of the world. Is it, is it any wonder that you turn on the news and you see exponential propagation of sin and depravity? I can't turn on the news for more than five minutes before I'm just discouraged by the world. Right? Why is that? James said it, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, worldly wisdom, there is disorder in every evil thing. God's wisdom, from Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8, is this. And our kids are learning this in the New City Catechism. Question number one is, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's God's wisdom in contrast to the world's wisdom. It comes from Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And this is antithetical. This is in direct contrast to the wisdom of the world. All right, um, so we've talked about the message, the method, the manner. Let's now move on to the motivation. The motivation, right? And again, back to uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, right? Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That we may present everyone complete in Christ. And I will add, by the power of Christ. So Roman numeral four, the motivation, that we may present everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ, right? So in the ESV, it says that, or in the NES, it says so that. It's a hinna clause, which indicates purpose, reason, goal, or endpoint. You could also translate it and say in order that. All right, letter A under Roman numeral four, the motivation. Letter A is our stewardship. Our stewardship. So that we may present Right? The word present implies that we have a stewardship that we have been entrusted with by God. We have a responsibility as, Christian, as Christians and as members of God's church. Did you know that to a certain degree, your brother's and, or sister's spiritual maturity is your responsibility? To a certain degree. God holds each one of us partially responsible for each other's faith and maturity. Our stewardship is to present everyone, every man, every person, every pasanthropos, Right? Complete in Christ. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? It's, it's one another. 
right? You see, we are to teach and admonish one another. It's not just the responsibility of the pastors or leaders. We all need to be trained and equipped in the Word of God so that we can counsel each other and continually remind each other about the Word of the Cross so that we can all apply it to our lives. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And this, this comes under, number one, the message, letter G, we proclaim him compulsively. Right? We proclaim him compulsively because we have a stewardship. So that's letter A, the motivation right, to, proclaim, to present everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ. Letter A is our stewardship. Letter B is our purpose, right? that we may present everyone complete in Christ, our purpose. What is the purpose of proclaiming Christ, admonishing and teaching with biblical wisdom? What does the word of God say? Is, it the, purpose, is the purpose so that we can all have successful careers and families? Is it so that we can all live comfortably and be happy? Is it so that everyone in the community will respect and like us? No. The purpose is so that we can present every person complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose also I labor. Paul labors. In the original language, the word is agonizomai, right? There is a striving, a force, a sense of desperation, effort, intentionality to present every person complete in Christ. And the word complete means uh, perfect or mature, teleos in the original language. But the word complete doesn't mean without sin. Right? Paul is not talking about perfection. He's talking about Christian maturity, being full-grown and mature in Christ. The goal of our ministry is not just to bring people to church or Bible study. It doesn't stop there. The goal of our ministry is not just to bring people to salvation. It doesn't stop there. The goal of our ministry and the counseling ministry of this church is to present every person complete and spiritually mature in Christ. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? A spiritually mature person knows and applies the word of God. He or she knows and is confident in the promises of God and in the gospel and clings to them, clings to them with dear life during times of trial and when life circumstances and tragedy occur. I wish we had more time to expound on the concept of being in Christ, but we need to move on. All right, let us see under the motivation, our scope. Our scope. So letter A we said was our stewardship. Letter B was our purpose, and letter C, our scope. What is the one phrase that is repeated three times in this passage? In verses 28 and verse 29, there's one phrase that is, that's repeated three times in this passage, and that's the phrase, every man, or every one, pasanthropos. Right? Every person means each and every person. There are no exceptions. We must teach everyone the truth and wisdom from the scriptures. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, the beautiful, and the ugly, we, we must teach every person. And that is not something that your pastor or your leaders can do alone. Not only is the requirement to teach every person, but it is the responsibility of every person. Presenting every person complete in Christ is such a lofty goal or high standard that we must employ every person to do the work. Right? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, so we've talked about the motivation for proclaiming Christ, our stewardship, our purpose, our scope, and letter D, our power. Our power. So you might be thinking at this point, Huey, on the one hand, you started out by saying that God doesn't grade us on performance. You said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You said that not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we live by grace through faith each day. 
But now, on the other hand, you're saying that we have this enormous responsibility or stewardship, agonizomai, right, to strive in order to present every person complete in Christ. How do you reconcile those two positions? It seems antithetical. The answer is in verse 29. Paul strives according to his power, which mightily works within me. His power or energy in the ESV. Christ's power worked within Paul, and it works within us. This is the power. The word in the original language is dunamis. We get the word dynamite from that. It's the power of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power that enables us to fulfill this stewardship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that he satisfied the requirement of God by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can receive forgiveness, righteousness, and a right relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is the apparent contradiction that Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. This is our power. Paul states that he labored more than other apostles, right? I labored more than all of them, yet he knows that it was the God's grace that enabled him working through him. All right, so just take a step back. Presenting everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ, the foundation of biblical counseling. We've looked at the message. We proclaim him. We've looked at the method through admonishing and teaching. We've looked at the manner with all wisdom and the motivation that we may present everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ. So we end up where we began with the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation for biblical counseling in the church. As we strive to present every person complete in Christ, may we begin with the message of Christ and end with the message of Christ as well. I'm going to end with a story here. Part of the spirit and the culture of the U.S. military is the creed that you don't leave anyone behind, whether injured, captured, or dead. The U.S. Army Ranger creed, the oath that the Army Rangers take, includes these words, quote, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, end quote. Salvatore Sal Gunta is a former staff surgeon in the United States Army. He was the first living person since the Vietnam War to receive the United States Armed Forces' highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. Sal Gunta was cited for saving the lives of the members of his squad on October 25, 2007, during the war in Afghanistan, and for upholding the military principle that no one be left behind. The following is what the President of the United States had to say about Sal. Here's a story. Sal and his platoon were several days into a mission in the Korngen Valley, Korngel Valley, the most dangerous valley in northeast Afghanistan. The moon was full, the, lit, the light it cast was enough to travel by without using their night vision goggles. With heavy gear on their backs and air support overhead, they made their way single file down a rocky ridge crest along terrain so steep that sliding was sometimes easier than walking. They hadn't traveled a quarter mile before the silence was shattered. It was an ambush. So close that the cracks of the gun and the whiz of the bullets were simultaneous. Tracer fire hammered the ridge at hundreds of rounds per minute. More, said Sal later, than the stars in the sky. They had Apache gunships above, and they saw it all, but they couldn't engage with the enemy since it was so close to our soldiers. The next platoon heard the shouting, but they were too far away to join the fight in time. The two lead men in this unit were hit by enemy fire and knocked down instantly. When the third was struck in the helmet and fell to the ground, Sal Gunta charged headlong into the wall of bullets to pull him to safety behind what little cover there was. As he did this, Sal was hit twice, one round slamming into his body armor, 
the other round shattering a weapon slung across his back. This unit, they were pinned down, and two wounded Americans still lay up ahead. So Sal and his comrades regrouped and counterattacked. They threw grenades using the explosives as cover to run forward, shooting at the muzzle flashes still erupting from the trees. They did it again and again and again, throwing grenades, charging ahead. Finally, they reached one of their men. He'd been shot twice in the leg, but he had kept returning fire until his gun jammed. As another soldier tended to his wounds, Sal sprinted ahead, at every step meeting relentless enemy fire with his own. He crested a hill alone with no cover but the dust kicked up by the storm of bullets still biting into the ground. There he saw a chilling sight, the silhouettes of two insurgents carrying the other wounded American away. This American happened to be one of Sal's best friends. Sal never broke stride. He leapt forward. He took aim. He killed one of the insurgents and wound, wounded the other who ran off. Sal found his friend alive but badly wounded. Sal had saved him from the enemy. Now he had to try to save his, save his life. Even as bullets impacted all around him, Sal grabbed his friend by the vest and dragged him to cover. For nearly half an hour, Sal worked to stop the bleeding and to help his friend breathe until the medevac arrived and lifted the wounded from the ridge. American gunships worked to clear the enemy from the hills, and the battle was over. They continued their mission. It had been as intense and violent a firefight as any soldier will experience. By the time it was finished, every member of the first platoon had shrapnel or a bullet hole in their gear. Five were wounded, two were dead. Again, this is the president speaking. Now, I already mentioned I like this guy, Sal, and as I found out, my, found out myself when I first spoke with him on the phone, and when we met in the Oval Office today, he is a low-key guy, a humble guy, and he doesn't seek the limelight. And he'll tell you that he didn't do anything special, that he was just doing his job, that any of his brothers in the unit would do the same thing. Staff Sergeant Gunta, repeatedly and without hesitation, you charged forward through extreme enemy fire, embodying the warrior ethos that says, I will never leave a fallen comrade. Your actions disrupted a devastating ambush before it could claim more lives. Your courage prevented the capture of an American soldier and brought this soldier back to his family. You may believe that you don't deserve this honor, but it was your fellow soldiers who recommended you for it. Just gonna finish up here. This is Sal's response. Sergeant Gunta said this, if I'm a hero, every man that stands around me, every woman in the military, everyone who goes into the unknown is a hero, he says. So if you think that's a hero, that's okay as long as you include everyone with me. Gunta insists that his actions were those of any man in his unit. In this job, I'm only mediocre. I'm average. I did what I did because in the scheme of painting the picture of that ambush, that was just my brushstroke. That's not above and beyond. I didn't take the biggest brushstroke, and it wasn't the most important brushstroke. First Corinthians, uh, uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, may, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We collectively as a church, through proclaiming Christ to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters, overcome our performance-based mindset and embrace the stewardship that God has given to us to counsel and to present every person mature or complete in Christ by the power of Christ. This is the heart foundation of biblical counseling. This is presenting everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. And God, we thank you for your promises that you are a God who is in control, that you are a God who is sovereign, that you are a God who is loving and kind and benevolent. And God, that you don't grade us based on our performance. When you look at us, you don't see all of our weaknesses. You don't see all of our sins our failings, our flesh. 
when you look at us, you see your son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work, living a life that fulfilled all scripture and his work on the cross. And we thank you, God, that when you look at us and you see us, you don't see us, but you see your son, Christ. We are your adopted sons and daughters. And God, we pray that as a church, Cornerstone Bible Church, that you would help us to hold, that we would embrace this stewardship, that we would hold fast to the stewardship that you've given to us, that we might present everyone complete in Christ by the power of Christ. For your glory we pray. Amen.